I am Jessica Brown, and this is the DEI Perspective. Here with me today is New York best-selling author, Mr. Andrew Marinus. He is the author of four books on sports, history, and social justice for teens and adults. His first book, Strong Inside, was a biography of Perry Wallace, the first black basketball player in SEC history. It was the first sports-related book ever to win the Lillian Smith Book Award for Civil Rights and the RFK Book Award Special Recognition Prize for Social Justice. His second book, Games of Deception, is the story of the first U.S. men's Olympic basketball team at the 1936 Berlin Olympics. It received the Sidney Taylor Book Honor Award. And his third book, Singled Out, is a biography of Glenn Burke, the first openly gay major league baseball player. Esquire magazine named it one of the top 100 baseball books ever written and was a 2022 rainbow book list selection. Andrew's new book, Inaugural Ballers, tell the story of the first U.S. women's Olympic basketball team at the 1976 Olympics in Montreal. Andrew lives in Nashville with his wife and young children and is director of special projects at the Vanderbilt University Athletic Department. Follow him on Twitter at TrueBlue24, that's T-R-U-B-L-U-24, and online at andrewmarinus.com. Andrew, it is a pleasure to have you today. It's a pleasure to be with you, Jessica. Thank you. I'm so excited because it has taken us almost two years to have you. With the pandemic and everything that came along with it, um, we're glad that we finally have you here on campus, and we're excited about your event today, um, talking about your book, Strong Inside. So we're so excited to have you, and I'm just going to dive in. Um, We want to talk about your legacy in regards to your history of being an author. So, Andrew, can you share your family's history with writing, and tell us a little bit about yourself and what this writing means to you. Sure, and I'm really excited to be here also. I've think back to that first time we talked and it was mid-COVID, you know, and I'm so happy that you were patient and we were able to work this out. Um, Yeah, so I have a a history of writing in my family going back to um, my grandfather, Elliot, who has a Michigan connection, uh, lived in Detroit in Ann Arbor, went to school at the University of Michigan. He was a newspaper reporter and editor for his entire career. Uh, My grandmother, Mary, who also, uh, who she he met at the University of Michigan, um, was a book editor at the University of Wisconsin Press. And then my father, their son, uh, David Marinus, has been a journalist for his entire career, uh, primarily at the Washington Post. And then he's written 13 books now. Uh, so growing up, the types of people that were that I was surrounded by were writers, you know, so I always saw that as something that um, wasn't uh, unusual. You know, uh, my parents' friends that would come over for dinner or, you know, for a party or whatever, they were fellow journalists. So uh, I was reading their stuff in the, in the paper every morning. Um, and so reading and writing was something that was uh, valued in our family and that I felt like I was doing from a young age. When I was 13 years old, um, I started my own little sports magazine. Uh, it existed for one issue, <laughs> you know. Um, and then uh, when I was in high school, I was sports editor of my school newspaper, and one day I was walking down the hall at the school, and there was a, a poster advertising a scholarship to Vanderbilt University in Nashville for high school sports writers. And so I felt like I'm really happy I saw this poster because I'm probably the only kid in the whole school that this really applies to. Uh, and so I applied for that and, and won it, you know. And that's how I ended up going to uh, school at Vanderbilt was on a sports writing scholarship. So I've always felt like 
writing has been a deep part of who I am. I didn't write my first book until I was, you know, in my mid 40s, but I was always writing prior to that. That's awesome. And so I know that writing this book, we're talking about Strong Inside because I want to ping our event today. Mm-hmm. It's going to be from 630 to 8 with the discussion of your book. And we're excited about this. I enjoyed this book because Perry Wallace, the Strong Inside has such a powerful theme in itself. And it carried the layers of kind of comparing to what is happening today versus during that time. But there was a time when Perry was not in the spotlight. He didn't have this book. What was your relationship with Perry and his family? Sure. So this uh, book that you're talking about, Strong Inside, is a biography of Perry Wallace. As you mentioned in the intro, he was the first black basketball player uh, in the SEC, first black player at Vanderbilt. Um, He grew up in Nashville in the 1950s and 60s. And the first time that I met him, actually, I didn't meet him. I talked to him on the phone was when I was a student at Vanderbilt. My sophomore year, I was taking a course in black history. And that was the year that Perry was finally invited back to campus 20 years after he had graduated to be honored, you know, as the Jackie Robinson figure of the school and of the entire conference. It had taken 20 years Uh, for the school to decide to honor him. And there's a whole story behind that Mm -hmm. too. But it just coincidentally was when I was a student. And so uh, taking this class, I thought that Perry would be someone that I would enjoy writing a paper about being a kid that was majoring in history and loved Mm -hmm. sports. And my professor, Dr. Jones, I I went to her and I asked, can I write a paper about Perry? And I thought she might say, no, you know, that we don't write about sports in college. That's not serious enough. But Mm -hmm. she said, go for it. And so I called Perry from my dorm room and interviewed him for that paper when I was 19 years old. And then 17 years later, uh, 36 years old, I emailed him and said, Hey, do you remember me? I wrote a paper about you in 1989. Um, Your story has stayed on my mind ever since. And I'd like to write a biography about you. And, you know, as a writer, you don't have to ask your subjects permission to, you could choose to write a book about whoever you want, but I wanted to be sure that he would cooperate, you know, and do interviews and introduce me to his family and, he said that he did remember. I don't know if he did or if he was just being nice. but uh, And so I got started the next day. And I spent eight years working on the book. Uh, it was a side project outside a regular job. Got married, had two kids. you know. So I was yeah. doing other things. I wasn't constantly working on the book for eight years. But it did take me that long. Benefit of that was that I was able to get to know Perry so well over eight years. you know, And to interview him multiple times. To go up and spend time with him in Washington, D.C., where he lived, or he would come down to Nashville, where he had grown up, where I lived at the time, um, and really go deep on on interviews and become really close friends. I considered Perry sort of a combination of a father figure slash favorite professor type of figure, you know, and just spend time listening and learning from probably the smartest person, you know, that I ever met. And so it was um, a really incredible experience. I felt very fortunate And all I tried to do in the book, um, you know, I interviewed 100 people. It wasn't just Perry, but just listen and learn from him and then get out of the way and just tell the story because he could tell it, you know, better than anyone. And his insights into his own experience were so profound. And he was able to um, look at himself sort of from the outside. You know, he could relate what he exactly went through, but also how other people perceived Mm -hmm. it and how he felt perceived in the world. And I think that's what made the story so um, strong. 
Now, I know we are talking about Strong Inside, but you are author of many books right now. And these are perfect books for where we are right now, even as a society. So I think they're right on time. Um, what's some of the other books that you have published? Yeah, so uh, my second book after Strong Inside is called Games of Deception. Mm-hmm. And it's the story of the first U.S. men's Olympic basketball team, which played at the 1936 Olympics in Nazi Germany. And with all my books, um, and I'll talk about the others too, but the point is to use sports as a way to talk about um, important social issues. And I think that sports is a really interesting and accessible venue to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, most people, they're either a sports fan or even if they're not, they, they're aware, you know, of what's happening in sports. And it doesn't seem intimidating to pick up a book that's got a basketball player on the cover, you know, but then you're going to get into civil rights in the 60s or games of deception. Then you're going to get into anti-Semitism and fascism in the days leading up to the Holocaust in Nazi mm-hmm. Germany, you know, um, my third book is called Singled Out, biography of Glenn Burke, who is the first openly gay Major League Baseball player and the inventor of the high five. Um, and so that book talking about the gay rights movement in the 1970s and the backlash to that, which, you know, you can sense a common theme in all of these yes. books, like racism, not gone, uh, fascism on the rise in the world, uh, anti-LGBTQ uh, um, campaigns all around the country right now. Um, my new book, which came out last week, is called um, Inaugural Ballers. It's the story of the first U.S. women's Olympic basketball team played at the 1976 Olympics in Montreal. And so that's dealing with, um, you know, women's rights a campaign of the 1970s. Again, women's rights in the news right now. Right. Yeah. Um, and so unfortunately, in a way, these stories are all too relevant. But fortunately, in a way, they are, too. You know, I think it's, sometimes it's easier for people to talk about um, what's happening in the country by looking at something that happened in the past mm-hmm. and then relate that to what's happening now. And these books are all written, well, I should say strong inside. There's two versions. So I wrote the initial version for adults and then adapted it for young readers. The second three books, there's just one version and they're meant to be kind of for everybody, you know, like yeah. with YA fiction, young adult fiction, Harry Potter, like maybe that's called a young adult book, but it's adults that are reading it too. And that's what I'm trying to do with my books now is make them so that you could, yes, you could be a high school student, college student reading it, but adults like, you know, they're, they're my readers too. And so it's, it, they're really books for everybody. Um, they really are. And I know that it's important to not just tell these stories, but also bring social awareness uh, to what's going on in this time. Um, you mentioned your young readers books um, with the, the goal of encouraging reading and literacy. But we're also talking about the social justice piece um, that you mentioned. When we tell these stories, um, you know, we want to highlight the important matters of bringing these subjects to the forefront so that we can offer to the community what can we do to be better and what that means and from a social aspect um, in this book with strong inside what I loved about the story of following Perry it was so unique in that um, anyone could relate to feeling the isolation but in part of social justice is saying I may not understand or know what to say but I want to be a part of the solution and not part of the pow, pow, uh, the, the solution, but not a part of the problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, how do you continue to make an impact on the youth? Because there's a lot of conversation right now about, you know, being able to have these conversations, but having them in a comfortable way. I know me personally, after George Floyd's death at that time, um, you, you felt isolated because now you're self-identified as a person of color. And how does this affect you and your community? And then it became a reach 
um, within the community um, and saying, I may not be that person that's protesting, but I definitely want to be that person that's at the table, having these uncomfortable conversations, building a safe space. That's what me personally, Jessica, wants to do in mm-hmm. the community is be at the table and say, how can we actually talk about talk about this in a way that we can respect each other? How can we pass that along to our youth with this book? If Perry Wallace was here, mm-hmm. you know, how could we impact that our youth today with this concept? Yeah, well, you know, one thing, uh, there's several things I want to hit on from that question. But in terms of impacting the youth, I mean, one thing very simple thing is just getting kids to read Mm -hmm. right now is tougher than ever, you know, with all the competition for their attention, right? Phones, video games, TV, friends, uh, more than ever. And so the reason why I'm writing sports related books is I know that there's a set of kids out there that love sports, but maybe not spending a whole lot of time in the library, Mm -hmm. you know? And so maybe those these books will reach them. Um, Speaking of the isolation issue that you mentioned, uh, when Perry Wallace uh, was at Vanderbilt, and he said this, he had a really uh, a great phrase. He said, we can all treat each other in any of three ways any day. You can be treated well by other people, you can be treated poorly by other people, or you cannot be treated at all. Mm. You know, and he said that that third way was actually the most difficult part of his experience as a pioneer uh, at Vanderbilt. And most people would expect when they hear, oh, this guy was the first black player in the SEC, that must have been that idea of being treated poorly that was the hardest. You know, he's going to have to go down to Mississippi and play in a basketball game in 1967 with people claiming that they're going to kill him after the game and players are hitting him in the face on purpose and refs aren't calling the foul. You know, he was dealing with that every year for four years. He told me he thought he might get shot and killed on the basketball court. But he said as difficult as that was, the most difficult part of his experience was on his own campus where he was one of the few maybe 20 something black students that were really desegregating the whole university you know Um, and he would talk about showing up for class and other black students I interviewed would talk about showing up for class and sitting down and noticing that none of their white classmates would sit in that same row with them or even the row behind them or you show up for your um, chemistry class and whoever has the stool next to you is supposed to be your lab partner for that day what if you show up first and you watch that door and no one chooses to sit next mm-hmm. to you, you know, or the um, social life on campus was all about the fraternity parties. If you were a black student, you, you weren't invited to be a part of a fraternity, you know, so your social life was really limited on that campus. And he said that feeling of isolation and loneliness lasted every day for four years or basketball mm-hmm. season was just, you know, 20, 30 games uh, in the winter. And so that was what was most difficult for him. And so what I hope that um, young people especially take away from the book is a difference between being a, um, a bystander or an upstander, you mm-hmm. know? And so you're every, all of us are faced with situations yeah. over the course of a week, you know, where you have a choice to make to get involved or not. And you might not choose to get involved every single time, but you need to be thinking about it, you know? And if you see this pattern of someone who's not being treated fairly, and this couldn't be involving race or gender mm-hmm. or religion or just a new kid at your school, you know? I was a new kid at school a few times, and I remember what it felt like to sit at the lunch table alone, Mm -hmm. you know, because I wasn't friends yet with anybody. And so we can all pull on our own experiences to relate to this situation. And I think at some level, it's pretty simple. Like, how would you like to be treated in that situation? Mm -hmm. You would like someone to make the effort to ask how you're doing or invite you to come sit with them or Mm -hmm. they choose to sit next to you, you know, and 
it's not always that simple, but a lot of this does come down to just human relationships and treating people um, with respect, you know? Um, and so I think that that's a message that talking about what's a message for youth that they can relate to, you mm -hmm. know, and hopefully they can take that forward. That is so true and so powerful. Um, I know that when we all look at it, we, and you and I have talked about many different areas of this, but more importantly, we kind of make it more difficult as a society. <laughs> like <laughs> we don't have to make this difficult. All we need to do is have empathy and respect to understand just being there for one another. Mm -hmm. And I know during some very um, difficult times in our country, you know, having people say, how are you doing? Or are you okay? Or I have people, my girlfriend on my, on the neighborhood, she would say, I'll burn my bra if I need to for you. <laughs> and right. it's, you know, you have those extremists and that's awesome, but it really feels good to know that people are going to say, you know what, you're not going to be in this alone. So I think that yeah. is important. And I think that's important. I don't know exactly what the environment like is here on campus, but I've heard, you know, that, um, it's predominantly white school, right? Mm -hmm. And, yes. um, and so whether it's a, a staff that may be predominantly white or a student body that is that make it's when you say George Floyd, right? Like especially difficult situation if you're one of the few black students or a few black administrators at the school to look around and wonder, like, does anyone really are they thinking about this? Right. Are they thinking about the impact that it has on me? You know, and so it's coming upon the people in the majority at the school to uh, reach out, right, and to, yes. to um, express some level of, of empathy and, and ask some questions, you know, and just at least admit, like, hey, you know, this is going on. You know, one thing yeah. Perry told me that when I wrote a paper about Perry, the title of it was When You See a Purple Man. And that was based on an anecdote he told me where he was experiencing uh, this level of racism and loneliness on his own campus that nobody else seemed to acknowledge, you know, and he's like, it's as if you're walking down the street and there's this purple man walking towards you and you're like, does anybody else see, see this? It. Like, why isn't anyone else saying right. anything about this? You know, and how that made him all of a sudden wonder, like asking himself questions when really he was the only one acknowledging the reality of what was going on. And what's so important of what you just mentioned about even our college campus, what has been enlightening for me is that even though we may not have the multi-diversity or cultural demographics as big as some other campus, I tell students, sometimes you just need to see the perspective and understand we don't have to have the same color skin. And that is even powerful in itself because certain students, when I had student focus group sessions, they're like, yeah, that's just not going to be tolerated. Like we have a generation that's growing mm -hmm. up that's saying we're not going to tolerate this. We don't care who you are, but if you are a person of color or if it's your sexual orientation, like we don't want to see anybody being harmed. And it, it was very enlightening to say even my children, mm -hmm. like they're friends, and I have a daughter that's six, and they're like, that's not the way you treat people. And they're very confident. Oh, yeah. Like they're going <laughs> to have a voice and that's the generation you want. I'm like, I want that generation yeah, to protect me. It does make because you feel better <laughs> thinking about yeah. younger generations who maybe yeah. are beyond. They're coming forward. And that's different though than saying like, I don't see color, you know, like that's, that's yeah, not the right thing to, to say, say that. right? <laughs> it's, it's seeing it it's and seeing then it. saying, we're not going to stand. We're for not going to stand. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And that's, that gives me hope. Mm -hmm. So it has been a pleasure. And then before I go, I'm going to put you on the spot. All right. Do you have any future projects <laughs> well, <laughs> on the works? Yeah. I'm actually starting a series of books for younger kids. So okay. say like first graders, um, it's going to be called bigger than sports. And it's about athletes who have done good things for other people beyond the court or beyond the field. And so the first book 
is about Maya Moore, who was a, a college basketball star at UConn and then in the WNBA. And she quit her pro basketball career at the height of her career to help get a man out of prison that was there for a crime he didn't commit. It was like Michael Jordan quitting basketball to do something. You know, that's what the equivalent of what Maya Moore did. Second book, um, I don't know how people in Michigan feel about LeBron. <laughs> you know, maybe you guys are all Pistons fans, but um, <laughs> it's about LeBron and the work he's done to start a school uh, yes. in Akron in his neighborhood. Um, and so there'll be similar books like that. That's awesome because, yeah, regardless of how you feel about LeBron, he is giving back in a, in a lot of ways and he's building his legacy on that. So that's pretty cool. That's right. Well, I'm excited. I hope to have you back. Like this is not the last time we'll be together. So yeah, I'd love to come back. It's been a great it's been great having you, Andrew, and we're looking forward to the event tonight. And uh, we just look forward to having you on campus. And we 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 are very grateful to be able to have these kind of conversations. Well, I'm grateful, too. I mean, I appreciated when you first reached out to me. You know, I live in Nashville. It's not like yeah. I live just down the street. But um, writing these books, the purpose is to get the stories out there. You know, so opportunities like this, I don't take them for granted. Thank you. You're welcome. And this has been the DEI Perspective.